Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, True Crime Island. Happy birthday to you. Hi, this is your host, Cambo. Grab a beer, grab your party hats, and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, first birthday edition. Hi to all the islanders out in podcast land. True Crime Island has turned one year old. To celebrate, I will go over all the cases from the past year. And of course, I will answer the uh, uh, AMA questions from the closed Facebook group as truthfully as I dare. But first of all, I must thank all the listeners that have made this podcast worthwhile. You are the ones that motivate me to produce a new episode each week. The feedback has been fantastic, and I'm proud that the people want to listen to what I have to say. So on that note, we'll go through the latest Patreon supporters on the island first. Mary Mary Virginia Avery, Cecil McCessel, Rebecca Manners, Tiffany Athens, Eileen Wilson, Key Sardi, Sonia G and Monica from Canada. Thank you for joining the Island Patreon group. Look out for your Facebook and Twitter shoutouts this week, along with last week's patrons. A big birthday cheer to everyone that has donated via PayPal and Patreon, who's bought merch from the shop, koozies and stickers. Also a big birthday cheer to all those who have left reviews and have shared the show with family and friends. To all of you that have contributed to the Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, happy birthday and thank you. A big happy birthday to everyone who has downloaded or streamed and had a listen. Happy birthday, True Crime Island. So, let's start at the very beginning. Let's have a listen to the first intro I put up on the 18th of September 2016, announcing this show to the world. Hi, welcome to True Crime Island. I'm your host, Cambo, bringing you another true crime podcast. In the coming weeks, I'll bring you true crime stories and mysteries from all over the world. The website's truecrimeisland.com, where I have links to Twitter and Facebook, and you can also send me an email. So sit back and relax. This is True Crime Island. Sounds like such a sweet and innocent guy. He's not going to get mad, is he? So, that was the start, and I thought the first episode would follow in a week after a month of research. Nope, with flu season in Sydney, I got sick and couldn't record. Plus, I was still trying to find out the best format for the show. With pages and pages of notes... The first episode featuring serial killer Charles Sabrage was not coming together. I originally thought if I know the case back to front and write notes, then I'll be able to just tell the story and it'll all come together by itself. Problem was, it was not coming together by itself. At, n- at least not without major editing time to cut out all the ums and ahs and dead sound. So then I tried to script it. Now, this worked a lot better, 
and I could go a whole 30 seconds without a mistake. Charles Sabrage was an interesting but complex case, and maybe I should have put it off until I'd found my feet. Uh, trying to sell the, tell the story, which had so many timelines that intermingled, was so difficult to manage and still get the main points across to the listeners without losing them. Charles is still in a Nepalese prison at age 73. He's just undergone heart surgery at the Shahid Gangalal Hospital on the outskirts of Kathmandu. He's in he's been in central jail in Kathmandu since 2003 after he was convicted of the 1975 murder of a US woman Connie Jo Brosnich. Life in Nepal means 20 years, but apparently there's another case pending in a district court waiting for him to be released. Now, this guy had already spent 21 years in an Indian jail for murder, so for just these two stints in jail, he spent about half his life in jail. While he was doing time in India, the Thais still had an arrest warrant out for him for murder. The statute of limitations for murder is 20 years in Thailand and his Indian jail sentence would have run out before the 20 years was up on the Thai warrant. So he staged a breakout in prison, hung around town for a few days and made sure he was captured so he could get his existing jail term extended to cover the Thai statute of limitations. I mean, this guy really plans for the long game. So when he got out of the Indian prison, the Thai statute of, statute of limitations kicked in, and so he didn't get extradited. The dickhead ended up having a pretty good life in France, but then he decided to go back to Nepal for some fucking reason where they nabbed him and convicted him of murder. He was my first case because it just fascinated me the way he went about using people, the way from country to country he would use a false ID, and how scary it would have been to meet up with him, and also how he can survive for so long in such shitty jails in India and Nepal. Then after he was finally jailed, Investigators tracked where he was at certain times over the years and linked him to over 40 more unsolved murders that had similar MOs to his for fuck's sake. So that was episode one, Charles Sabrage, the serpent or the bikini killer. Then episode two, Jody Arias. This has always fascinated me, how someone is, is quite attractive and intelligent who could also be so jealous to the point of murder, it really caught my interest. Of course, the media had a field day. Whatever the fuck a field day is. I don't know, but anyway, they had a field day on this one. Sex, lies and murder. When you look at the case, you can see she had a, she'd planned for it for a while and in quite a lot of detail. However... When it came to actually putting the plan in action, she fucked it up so bad. I summed up her fuck-ups as follows in, in the episode. And I said, so where did she go wrong? Well, it, well, 
If you're going to steal your grandma's gun, at least swap it for a different one before shooting your boyfriend in the face. Next, pay cash for everything you need and don't borrow fuel cans from friends. Don't leave bloodied palm prints in the bathroom. Washing cameras does not delete photos. Deleting photos does not delete photos. Take that memory card with you. Don't use friends as alibis, then do dodgy stuff like disappear for a day and then turn up with bandages on your hands. Lay off on the repeated stabbing as this indicates a crime of passion. A stabbing is so close up and personal. It is also messy and leads leads to an issue like the bloodied palm print being left behind. Don't change your story three times. People will see you as a liar, especially the jury. Don't take the stand. This can only harm you. Makes great TV though. Now, I think this was a sign of things to come. Anyway, episode three, we had Eliza Lamb. This interested me because of the elevator game and how her death was pretty much a mystery. She seemed such a lovely girl on her travels to see the world and ended up dead in, of all places, the Cecil Hotel that has a notorious reputation. Although the elevator game is probably bullshit, I'm not going to try it in case I look at the lady that gets in on the fifth floor. If you don't know what I'm talking about, have a listen to the episode. Have a look also at this Japanese movie called Dark Water, released in 2002. Basically, a mother and daughter move to a new house where there are paranormal events and water leaking from ceilings, hair and dark-coloured water coming from the taps. Eventually, the body of a girl is found decomposing in the water tank on the roof. In the movie, there's a scene where the mother goes to the roof and is wearing an outfit so very similar to what Eliza was wearing in the lift. It's spooky, given that the movie was released more than 10 years before Eliza's visit to the hotel. Is this predictive programming, maybe? Well, I don't know. But it was such a sad case and still there's no real 100% answer to how she ended up in the water tank. Now we come to episode 4, the Matthew Levison case. This was released in December 9, 2016 and at the time Matthew had been missing for nearly 10 years. This really got to me as the family had been through so much and the person that was most likely to be his killer had been acquitted, mainly because of a stuff-up in the investigation. This was my first Aussie case. Later in the year, I was in Thailand when my phone went bang. It was a message from Mark Levison, Matt's father, saying I had done a great job on my podcast. It still sends chills up my spine when I read that, and it just did writing about it. I was four episodes in, and I was getting feedback from a victim's father saying I was doing a great job. 
So, wow, this podcasting thing was starting to become more than a hobby. I messaged back saying I would get in touch on my return. But then when I got back to Australia, remains were found that would eventually be identified as Matthews. In respect for the family, I did not contact them at that time as there was enough media getting in their face. So that was the first of the special edition shows. As you know, I've since updated this case on another special edition, which included the complete statements from the end of the coronial inquest read out by Mark and Faye Levison. I know this touched a lot of you deeply, and I wanted it read out in full as the mainstream media just reported a couple of lines. Catherine Knight, she was episode 5. Well, we all know about her. I think the most major true crime most major true crime podcasts have done a bit on her. Gruesome. Gruesome. She was in, she was good in bed though. Now, would you swipe right or left? Then there's episode 6, the little Keisha Whippet murder. This got to me and I and I have had to have my say about this. I could tell from the first media reports that her scumbag mother and that other dickhead boyfriend of hers killed her. Thankfully, the cops didn't give up and now these animals are locked up for a long time. Episode 7, The Granny Killer. Well, this was the hometown murder for the My Favourite Murder Show I attended last Monday night, which in itself was fantastic. And in fact, during the meet, meet and greet, Georgia uh, said as I walked up in my True Crime Island t-shirt, True Crime Island, we love your show. Wow, anyway, John Wayne Glover, pie salesman and granny killer, knock an old lady on the head just as she's about to open the door, take a few hundred dollars out of her purse, and then up to the club to play the slot machines and grab a beer. Rinse, repeat. Episode 8 was suggested by Troy at work as he'd gone to school with the bloke, Seth Gonzalez, the little prick that killed his whole family so he could get an early inheritance. This little lazy prick had no remorse at all. You know, his dad risked his own life by pulling Seth out of the rubble of their hotel after an earthquake in the Philippines, So what a way to pay him back. Well, after he murdered his family, he tried to pay off a girl for hire to say he was with her when the murders happened. But she fessed up the truth when she realised it was to give Seth an alibi for the killings. Another planner like Jody Arias, and they just went all wrong. Let's hope he stays locked up for a long time. Roger Dean, Episode 9, tried to cover up the stealing of drugs from the nursing home he worked at by burning the place down. Killed a lot of people and it also showed up a lot of failures in the system and why he should not have been employed at the facility in the first place. This was the first case where corporate greed had a great deal to do with how the event unfolded. Then episode 10, Daniel Morecambe, the little boy abducted in daylight while waiting for a bus. 
The case was cold for a long time and this is another case where the family kept strong and kept on. Eventually, around 10 years later, the scumbag murderer Brett Cowan finally succumbed succumbed to his own greed and was caught on camera confessing to the murder. Police used the Uzcut technique on him. Uzcut, I think that's how they say it, it stands for Unsolved Serious Crime Undercover Technique. I think Christy Lee had a case where they used it the other day. It's from Canada. Basically, they lured him in with promises of girls, drugs, guns and money to a gang of corrupt police and gangsters. Once he was in, they told him that there was a matter of the missing boy they needed to clear up and he would have to confess so they could clean up the problem so as not to affect their criminal gang into the future. Cowan confessed and led them to the burial site where he eventually found out he was part of a sting, arrested and convicted. There is a Daniel Morecambe Foundation that has two main aims. To educate children on how to stay safe in a physical and online environment and to support young victims of crime. So you can support the foundation also by going to www.danielmorkham.com.au. Now, before Black Hands, there was episode 11, The Bain Family Murders. I pretty much agree on what Black Hands had to say, but I was a bit more straight to the fucking point and called out Bain for the fucking scum he is. Episode 12. That was the murder in paradise where William Wild Bill Holbert would befriend people, then murder them and take their stuff. He found that in Panama, expats would buy property and the deeds would be in the form of a share certificate. Whoever held the certificate owned the property. Easy. Kill someone that owns property that most likely won't be missed or is living under an assumed identity. Take the share certificate and register it in your own name. Greed often means you don't stick to the plan, and so you kill people that will be missed and end up in jail. Greed features in a lot of true crime. What interested me about this was the beautiful island setting of Panama. Well, the islands of Panama and how scoundrels will go there to run from the law in their own countries, only to be fucked up by another bigger scoundrel. It would boil your piss, wouldn't it? Episode 13, The Milpera Massacre. I guess as close as any to a hometown murder for me. I grew up around the area and drank at the Viking Tavern knew one of the bikies mentioned, and the father of Leanne Walters, who got caught up in the shootout and was killed. Well, her father used to deliver diesel fuel to our farm. So that was just a bunch of guys led on by a couple of narcissistic, pig-headed leaders, and they ended up in a shootout. Interesting to read the books on the whole sorry saga. Seven dead in the end, plus one of the accused bikies hangs himself in prison before the trial. When you have a look at it, it was really just a waste of life. There was no reason for it at all. Another hometown mystery was my next case. 
the Juanita Nielsen case. She was an heiress to a huge fortune and lived up the road from where I live now at King's Cross. It was in the 70s and there was so much corruption in the state of New South Wales. She was campaigning against development in the area and ended up going missing. With a cast of characters from the Premier of New South Wales, the Police Commissioner, organised crime bosses, the union's green movement, a millionaires and the people that were to be kicked out of their residencies. This had it all. This happened when I was young and I was always a, it was always a big mystery as to what really happened to Juanita. Sadly, most of the people involved are dead and no remains were ever found, although it is presumed that Juanita was murdered to keep her quiet as she may have had information that could have brought a lot of people down. The next episode was truly disgusting. The Janine Balding murder by a gang of street rodents that thought it would be fun to abduct, rape and murder an innocent young girl just for the fun of it. Of course, they got caught and and had the book thrown at them. Still, that is small comfort for her family, friends and fiancé. Have a listen to the full story. Episode 16. That was of John Martin Scripps. Here we go overseas to Singapore, Thailand and Central America. Scripps was interesting and he almost knew what he was doing and he probably, probably would have gotten away with it. But murdering people, taking their stuff fleeing the country to go murder more, then flying back to where you murdered the first person, with the murder weapon, the victim's belongings, and a kilo of weed in your carry-on luggage. For fuck's sake, mate. What the fuck were you thinking? About this time, my first ever special edition hit when they found Matt Levison's remains. It was a short announcement But since then, the special editions turned True Crime Island from an episode every two weeks into a weekly show, with the main cases one week followed by a special edition the following week. All because of you guys, my loyal islanders. You wanted it, so you got it. Then, episode 17, Peter DePass, the serial killer. What me what made me mad about this was how the justice system kept letting him out and he would just go right ahead and pick up where he left off until he escalated from rape to rape and murder. This little weasel of a fuck nugget should have been locked up for longer and without parole. Then the Grenfield, Grenfell fire happened. I noticed it in my news feed and decided to have a closer look. I was shocked at the extent of the damage after just the fridge blowing up and the fact that the fatalities were rising fast. I decided to look a little deeper, and again, corporate greed and government cost-cutting were to blame. The residents had been campaigning for years, saying the place was a death trap, and that nothing would be done until there was a disaster. Well, there was, and then, like fucking little cockroaches, 
all those ran away and sought legal advice on how to pass the blame onto others. With around 80 dead, and I'm sure there are more, and a dodgy inquiry set up, we will still have to see if any justice will be done. Basically, the panelling that was used to make the building look better made it a fire hazard. And it looks like deregulation of the building industry was to blame for it being used in the first place. Well, it's everywhere in Australia and and no one wants to take responsibility for the panelling being used. This will be followed up in the future. Episode 18 and David and Catherine Burney. Two fucked up fucktards that went on a sexual murder spree in Western Australia. Five weeks of madness, four dead girls and one that escaped with her life and brought them to justice. This is horrific and Catherine is still trying to get parole. I'll let you know if she ever gets out. Then we had Malcolm Naden who was on the run for years in the bush after killing Christy Scholes and the murder of his cousin, Letitia Nolan. He was called an expert bushman by the media, but in reality, he did it really hard, having to break, enter and steal whatever he could from isolated homesteads in the bush. The cops nearly got him a few times, but he somehow always got away. Eventually they got him, and if you have a look at the photos of him on my Instagram, which is at True Crime Island, you will see he was living rough and probably happy the cops finally found him so he could go and have a shower. Then the next special edition was on the Marcus Faisal case, which was a Facebook request. This poor three-year-old kid never had a chance in life. I won't go into too much detail here, but please listen to the excellent coverage of this case on the Minds of Madness podcast. Beck and Tyler have done so much in-depth research into this case and is well worth the listen. A big shout out to Beck and Tyler for their support of not only the island, but of many other podcasts out there. Cheers. Next episode was another listener request. The killing of little Cleon Jackman in Western Australia. Cleon was only 14 years old when he was abducted by three fuck roaches who then tortured him for five hours until he died. They then buried him in a shallow grave and went and had dinner. What got my blood pressure rising, it was because one of the perps, Rebecca Papali, is now out and living her life remorse-free in New Zealand. If you read her story, it's all me, me, me. I'm not going to say any more, but listen to the episode, as it's making me mad again. Episode 21, The Granville Train Disaster. Again, this shouldn't have happened. Government cutbacks, bad design and bad luck all came together that day in January 1977 where 84 people would lose their lives. 83 people plus one unborn. This was my second interview and first where I actually played back the interview in the episode. It was media clip heavy as well. 
one of the saddest episodes, especially the story at the end. The next special edition was the story from one of our uh, island warriors, a story of survival, of overcoming a horrific event and coming out the other side much stronger than before. Episode 22, well, that was the murder of Deborah Gardner in Tonga while working for the US Peace Corps. This really fucking pissed me off. I won't, again, I won't go into too much detail, but it stinks how the US Peace Corps went about this. Deborah was stalked by her co-worker Dennis Priven after she knocked him back. Priven or Priven ends up murdering her. The Peace Corps then provide huge legal aid for Priven that ends up getting him off and he goes back to the US where he gets a government job for life. Listen and you'll know why I got mad on this one. Then we were back in Thailand for the pickup truck killer a lesson in why police need to share information so that criminal scum can be detected uh, faster. Then finally, last week's Murder Babes episode. Another Thai story. Again, remorseless killers, but this case had a twist as the perps became celebrities while on the run. It was social media gone mad. So that was the year that was on the island. Now, I answer the listeners' questions. First up, happy birthday to Michael Gerlach, host of Insight on Disability, do a surgery show. He covered the Catherine Sesnick case that was featured on Netflix a few months ago. Go and have a listen. Senga, you asked... What's the weirdest thing an islander has asked you? Or what is the funniest thing an islander has posted? Well, look, this is a hard one and you are probably in the top 10 with several other entries. I think it is when I drop an episode and I get a reply that someone laughed so hard that their coffee went through their nose or they nearly crashed the car they were laughing so hard. Zenga also asked, Also, who do you think is the biggest piece of shit you have covered? Well, Zenga, there are the Bernies, and then there's Seth, plus the scum that murdered Janine Balding. It's hard to really say that one piece of shit stinks more than the others. When you look at the child killers of Daniel Morecambe, Marcus Faisal and Keisha Whippet, how... I mean, how do you rank them? Another question, Sanger again. I also like to know what you find most rewarding and most challenging about doing the pod. Well, getting feedback from Matthew Levison's dad was the most rewarding, but the kind words I get from the Islanders is just as rewarding as well. We've come a long way over the last year and I've come to know and meet some amazing people. So thank you all. The most challenging thing is getting the show out on time. It takes a lot of research to, to make the show sound like I actually know something about the case. Sometimes it's hard to find hard facts. If you can get court records, it makes the job much easier than relying on news articles. 
old cases are really hard to do, especially if no one has written a book about them or the media wasn't interested. The Cleon Jackman case was almost impossible to find reliable news articles on and I got most of the info not from the actual court trials for the murderers, but their appeal cases. Senga, I'll send you a selfie at some stage. So back to Michael. Michael Gerlach. I have so many questions about the inner workings of how you do your research. Do you get any resistance when doing your research? Well, Michael, thanks for the question. Not really any uh, resistance because I don't ask. I do it all online and buy books if required and watch whatever docos that may be relevant. I think as the podcast grows, I may get more resistance, especially if I start going for freedom of information requests. I don't have the time to do my own investigation into unsolved cases just yet, but if I end up doing this full time, then I am sure to make people a little uncomfortable. So let's all chip in and let me leave work and do this full time, eh? Paul Butler. He asked, have you always been into true crime? And has there been a case what has left a mark on you mentally? Also, happy one year anniversary. Great podcast going from strength to strength. Thanks, thanks, Paul. Um, I think I've always been fascinated with true crime and I didn't really notice it. I've been travelling a reasonable amount over the last 20 years and I watch a lot of cable TV in hotels that I've stayed at. I found that I would gravitate to the true crime channels the most. I don't think any case has left a mark on me mentally, but a lot of them have made me mad. The child abuse ones are just so sad and the ones where the justice system has failed also bring on the Cambo rage. Probably the most recent one to make a mark was the Grenfell Tower disaster. So many people became a consequence of cost-cutting of austerity measures. In this day and age where CEOs and upper management wages are out of control, to strip the poorest and those at the bottom of the economic ladder of everything, even a safe place to live, really has made a mark on me mentally and I hope in the future to be able to be a voice for them. Jennifer Edmondson Swider. So, if you didn't live in Australia, what country would you live in? What case have you covered that has not been solved do you think is the most solvable? What crime or happening that has haunted you most would you love to see solved? Okay. Jennifer, I love Thailand and I need a, need to find a way to go and live there with the lovely Katie. Or, if I can buy my own island, that would be just as good and all will be welcome. The case that has not been solved and is easily solvable is the Matthew Levison case. Michael Atkins has now admitted his involvement to some degree and he led police to his body. The deal he struck with prosecutors to reveal where he buried Maddie means he probably won't be brought to justice. It was a deal with the devil that the parents agreed to just so they could bring Maddie home. Let's hope karma has its way with Atkins. 
I would really like to see the Juanita Nielsen case solved. There are people out there that are still alive that know what happened. But there's so many unsolved cases. I'd, look, I'd like them all to be all to be solved. Heather Popley. Hi, Heather. Tell us a few of your favourite podcasts that we maybe haven't heard of. Well, Heather, I think you've probably heard of all of them. But, and you probably know the ones I listen to already. A new one, Extraordinary Stories podcast by Baz Henderson. Now that was shown to me by Senga. If you haven't already listened, you have to do it. Some say we're a bit the same, except I have an Aussie accent and Baz has a Scottish one. Now don't worry, his accent isn't that thick that you need subtitles. So good on you, Bazza. Another one is True Crime Japan. I like the style and you probably haven't heard the cases either. A new one is True Crime Finland. And just have a look at that. That I think that's going to be fantastic, that one. Ariel Jane, what unsolved mystery bothers you the most? Hi, Ariel. Um, everybody, Ariel hosts her own show, Murder Under the Midnight Sun. So if you haven't listened to it, you should sub as it brings you stories mainly from Alaska, which sounds a bit dangerous place to me. Okay, not so much this case bothers me, but it intrigues me. It's the Elisa Lamb episode. How did she get in the water tank? I mean, was there other people involved? It does bother me that someone can go missing and no one knows what happened. Well, I do think someone knows what happened, but they are probably involved and aren't telling anyone. Mary Virginia Avery. She asked, What question do you always wish someone will ask, but they never do? Mary, that's a good question. Maybe I would like to hear, Cambo. Do you want to have your own show on syndicated radio or TV and rage to the world? Let's bring some scumbags to justice. I'd like to hear that. Jennifer. Jennifer Boyden. Hi. Do people recognise you by your voice when you're out? Do you like doing the podcast? And are you and Jason Abercrombie the same person? Jennifer. No one has recognised me by my voice, but they have when I wear my True Crime Island t-shirt out. Just last week at the Murderinos meet-up before the My Favourite Murder show, I was wearing my shirt and went up to a group of ladies asking if they were Murderinos, and they asked me if I was Cambo. Rebecca Jones also asked me at the Podcasters Awards as well. It's a great feeling to meet listeners out in the wild. I love doing the podcast. It started as a hobby and it's grown from there because of the amazing Islanders that have given me such lovely feedback over the past year. Now, am I and Jason Abercrombie the same person? Jason is my evil twin. Millicent, 
Millicent M. Turk. She asks, was there any particular thing that made you decide to start podcasting or was it something you always wanted to do? Millicent, probably the main thing that wanted me to start my own podcast was that I had all the skills to produce it and podcasts such as Serial made me think that I could do it as well. I was planning to do it for a long time, then Casefile came along and he really inspired me that I could do it. As he started off alone in his bedroom and now look how successful his team are. So I thought I can do it and it's a great hobby. Also, I've always wanted to be on TV as a kid. I thought that would be the best job anyone could have. I'm not on TV, but I am the host of my own show. So yes, I've always wanted to be out there doing my thing. Next question is from Jason Abercrombie. And he asks, what's your real name? Well, Jason, I could tell you, but then I'd have to kill you. And then what would happen to the 4X factory? They'd go broke because no one else drinks it. Lauren Burke, is there any case that you've covered that has stuck with you that you're still angry about even after getting <laughs> getting my what the fucking fuck rant out in the episode? Lauren, look, there's a lot of them. As I mentioned earlier, the Matthew Levison case makes me so mad as a scumbag that was involved in it is walking free and probably never going to come to justice. And then there's the ones where little kids are involved that piss me off. Thirdly, the ones that were avoidable but for tight arsedness, where the victims were not the ones that made the decisions that set their fate. Next question. Another one from Jason Abercrombie. And he asks, Can you apologise for calling 4X camel piss? Jason, I'm so sorry that I called it camel and cat piss. To tell you the truth, I don't know what camel or cat piss tastes like. So, there. Sorry. And one last question from Karen. What is your day job? Well, IT guy. Do you have kids? Not that I know of. How old are you? Younger than Jason. And do you hide your face because you tell so, uh, tell so many killers they're fuckity fucking assholes? Well, I hide my face just to keep Karen Barnes frustrated. With regards to Thailand, how many times have you been and can we see photos? Well, to tell you the truth, I've no idea how many times I've been to Thailand. I do get a pen from the hosties each flight and I have a shitload of them. Okay, finally, that's the end of the questions. Finally, I want to thank a lot of people who have supported the island throughout the year. Firstly, I was going to go through and thank everyone personally until I realised it would take hours to do so. But I think there is one person that kicked this show off. They kicked it off and running in the very early days. It was Nina Instead from Already Gone Podcast. She reached out and contacted me very early on and gave me some great advice. 
Without it, I don't think I would be here where I am today. So thank you, Nina. Thanks to all my fellow podcasters. You do know who you are and you're just too numerous, like I said, to uh, mention you today. Thanks to all the listeners out there. I do this just as much for you as I do it for myself because you're all so goddamn awesome. I'd like to say hi to the top 10 posters on the True Crime Island Closed group. So, hi to David Allen, Senga Robertson, Heather Popley, Jane Bradley, Siobhan McLachey, Lindy Catlady Beaumont, Jerry UK Correspondent Hannafin, Jason Forex Abercrombie, Lauren Burke and Josh Gould. I've done the Patreon shoutouts for the week, but if you'd like to sign up to Patreon, go to patreon.com forward slash truecrimeisland or for a PayPal one-off uh, donation, my account is cambo at truecrimeisland.com. I still have koozies and stickers, so email me on that email address if you want any. There is a merch link at the top of my website, www.truecrimeisland.com, where you can wear your support or drink from the mug of rage. Finally, you can support the island just by sharing it with friends or family and help them if they're not sure what to do. There's a wide world of podcasts out there for you and give the gift that keeps on giving. Okay, so happy birthday to True Crime Island. Thank you all for helping it grow and being part of it. If I've left anything out, please stick it on Facebook or Twitter. Twitter Twitter and Instagram are at True Crime Island. Finally, before I go... Thanks to the lovely Katie that has to put up with me and has helped out in quite a few episodes. Kissity kiss. So, I'm your host Cambo, and this has been True Crime Island Happy Birthday Edition. Don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night.